You guys, there is a simple, uh, popular meme that floats around on social media. Uh, it's a really simple concept. It's a prompt that, set, that is in two columns, how it started and how it's going. Now, if we were inside, we would have a lot of really cringy examples of that for you on screen. Uh, but since we're out here, let's imagine for a second. Let's think of that prompt together through the lens of the church. Uh, we can look back, and that's what we're going to do this morning at Scripture, and see how it started. And we can look around at this conglomeration of people uh, and see a little piece of how it's going. The same church... Alive and well, growing wider and deeper, with many, many, many pockets of Christian community in our own neighborhoods, in our town, and around the globe, uh, spawning from the very first Christian community, Jesus' own small group of apostles. See, the most powerful thing that ever happened anywhere started as a small group. You may be relieved uh, at the end of this series to know that this series altogether now is actually based on something, namely on the example that we find of Jesus, uh, how he lived and how he formed his earthly ministry. Jesus shows us that we were designed for relationship. He shows us how we are to live that relationship with one another uh, through the example of his own band of disciples. And so we're going to look at Jesus this morning uh, with just this one primary sentence we'll keep coming back to, that Jesus was a small group leader. That's right. Jesus was a small group leader. We're going to use that as our outline this morning and move, kind of bounce around through that sentence word by word. And I'm going to start with the word group. Jesus was a small group leader. Let's start by reminding ourselves of who made up that original small group group. The members of that group weren't religious or especially educated in religious things. They weren't worthy, so to speak. They weren't who you would pick out to say, I want you to start a worldwide spiritual movement. They weren't who you might typically think of for that. If you were to ask them, my guess is they would say they weren't ready. Anyone have God ask you to do something and you're like, I'm not quite ready? Yeah, we've all been there. They weren't worthy. They weren't ready. They weren't religious. They weren't especially educated. In fact, at times they were a mess, and they had a lot of unlearning to do. And when you look at this small group of, orig uh, of original Jesus followers, they weren't all alike. Indeed, they were almost designed for conflict. They had only one thing in common— they heard Jesus say, follow me, and they did. Amen? That's all they needed. That's all that mattered. There's this great moment in Acts chapter 4. The apostles are taking some heat for preaching Jesus to people, and the religious leaders are, are kind of, you know, they're coming against them, and it says the members of the council, this is Acts 4.13, were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see just by looking at them, it says, that they were ordinary men. Someone say ordinary. They were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And in the end, that was what identified them. Friends, that's us. We are ordinary. And we are special only in that we have discovered just how awesome Jesus is, amen, and just how much he loves us. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this to a group of Christians, and I always feel an identification with this statement. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, y'all were ordinary, and that didn't stop God from loving you, from calling you, and calling you together. I love what Kate said earlier. The most powerful thing to ever happen anywhere in human history, the movement of life and faith we call Christianity, started as a small group. Powerful things happen in small groups. These guys were of diverse backgrounds, like I said, and they weren't all guys. Mary Magdalene and other women were a part of this group as well. That was something revolutionary in Jesus' day. He calls a zealot who wants to overthrow the government. He calls a sellout tax collector who works for the government, both in the same small band of disciples. So to be around Jesus, they had to figure out how to be around each other. Does that sound familiar? Let me say that one more time. This is actually a line Kate gave me. To be around Jesus, they had to figure out how to be around each other. That was true then, and it's true now. There's this moment when Jesus' mother and brothers come to a place where he's teaching. Your mother and brothers are looking for you, Jesus is told. He looks around at his disciples and those listening to his teaching, and he says, here are my sisters and my brothers. He was building a new community, a new family, a new tribe, a new kinship, and he still is. And that's what we've been calling us all to over this last month. Dozens of you have responded and are finding your fit in a group. I can't thank you enough for that. Dozens of you have contacted Kate and are finding your fit in a group. I can't tell you how tremendously encouraging that is for us because we live day and night to develop disciples of Jesus here at Outlook, and we know groups are a heavy part of that. So if you're ready to start that conversation, you can go to outlookchurch.org groups. Mm-hmm. So Kate, Jesus was a small group leader. Jesus was a small group leader. When we come together in small groups, we have this potential to be changed by one another. And so Jesus assembled this group of 12 uh, guys who were willing but definitely unformed. Just about a year and a half, though, of living closely with Jesus. And they became the people who took the good news of Jesus to the rest of the world. Two of the better-known apostles were James and John, uh, but Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. Fishermen by trade, these brothers were intense. They were boisterous and feverish and reactionary, and their gut instinct was toward brute force and power. They were not formed. You know, one time uh, when Jesus and his disciples were not warmly welcomed into a Samaritan village, uh, they asked Jesus, James and John, if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven uh, and destroy the town, just casually. Uh, No, uh, that feels like a steep overreaction. And who said that James and John had the ability to call down anything from heaven uh, in God's name? So Jesus rebuked them. He put them in their place. But this was kind of their M.O. James and John uh, were always in the middle of conflict with the other apostles about who would be the greatest. Uh, Three different times in the gospel accounts, usually right after Jesus had predicted his own suffering. So I don't know how closely they were paying attention. Uh, James and John 
uh, and the guys would pick a fight about status. James and John came across as arrogant and overconfident. They fixated on their place and the pecking order. At one point, they even put up their mom to approach Jesus to ask for the most prominent thrones next to him in heaven. That is not a good look for apostles of Jesus. So it's funny uh, that by the end of his life, John is known as the apostle of love. John writes about love more than any of the other New Testament authors, both in his gospel and in his letters. And there's something about a couple of years of close contact with Jesus that turned this son of thunder a little soft. The importance of love and humility became major themes in his life as John was transformed by Jesus through proximity. So how did this happen? When John said something dumb, Jesus rebuked him. When Jesus taught, John listened with an open mind and heart. Whatever Jesus did, he gave John the opportunity to observe and then to practice himself. John is actually the only gospel author to document Jesus washing his disciples' feet, a story that we all know really well if you've been around the church for a while. Jesus' example of humility and of service clearly struck him and left a lasting impression on John's life. What did, what did Jesus do with John? The same thing he did with all 12. Uh, he taught them. He rebuked them. He gave them opportunities to practice what he taught as they learned from him. He loved them. He served them. He lived life in front of them and let them watch how he did it. And these are not revolutionary things. These are things that we do together uh, in Christian community and small group. Through Jesus' example, uh, written down and packaged for us in the gift of scripture, and through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us as the church. Being in Jesus' band of apostles did not change who John was. It didn't change his personality, but it did balance it. Love rose in importance along with truth. The boldness that defined John was married with gentleness and molded to glorify God. By the end of his life, John was the apostle writing things like, Beloved, dear children, let us love one another as God has loved us. This was not the same dude. And by all accounts, John was a devout Jew. He was a known member of his community when Jesus called him uh, as one of the 12. Uh, he, you know, was a part of his father's fishing business. Uh, before Jesus, he was a disciple of John the Baptist along with Andrew. And so John sought truth. John had some of, you know, the typical knowledge that a devout Jew in this culture would have. But knowledge was not enough for life transformation. John grew in love and in humility because he learned it from who he was with. He saw it lived out up close and it seeped into him uh, like osmosis. We become like those we are in closest proximity to. We can't help it um, from happening, but we can consciously choose that. We can move in that direction. Proverbs 13 tells us, uh, you know, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. So we, like John, get to decide who we will become by deciding who we will surround ourselves with, who we wrestle through the big questions with, who we go to for advice, who calls us out when we need it, who we watch as an example. And we come together in small groups and we change with each other because of each other. Jesus was a small group leader. 
That's right. Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus was also a small group leader. We need to remember that we're not talking about a bunch of people here, right? Just really a handful. And so we can be reminded that in God's economy, smaller does not equal less important. In fact, small can have big power. Sure, Jesus taught crowds and, uh, and had lots of those, but he mentored and spent most of his time with a small group of disciples. I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. It's when he, when he says to his followers, for where two or three gather as my followers, I am there among them. Now, not only do I love, uh, of course, the promise that he's with us, I love the fact that he's anticipating that believers are going to get together in groups of even two or three. He's describing that. He's setting that picture, and he's assuring us when that happens, and it will, I'll be right there. In fact, he says, I'm not going to miss it. It's that important to me. He'll show up. Great things happen in large gatherings and worship services, but small groups of us, too, get to experience great things because Jesus is there. We like to say there's strength in numbers, but we should remind ourselves, and this, the gospel reminds us of this clearly, there's strength in small numbers, too. Numbers like 12 and 3. Crowds are fine. Large groups and gatherings of their, are, are, form their own Large groups and gatherings are their own form of awesome. But Jesus, and Jesus drew drew crowds all the time. But there's also something to be said for pressing through the crowd. And I guess if you were to summarize what Kate and I have been wanting to convey from the scriptures this month, it's we love the crowd. Now press through that crowd, past the masses, into the everyday real-life presence of fellow disciples who are hungry for God, who are thirsty for wisdom, who are eager to obey or at least learn how to obey and make a difference in this world. Why is this so important? Because the love that we love to talk about can just seem like a theory. The love that John was inspired to write about, that Kate just read about, it can seem like a neat idea or something we just write songs or poetry about. But in a local church, and especially a small group, that is where you get to know others and be known by them. It's where love is felt. It's where love is learned. It's where love can't be denied. So we take for granted, you know, if we're familiar with the Scriptures, we take for granted that Jesus had only 12 disciples. But have we really considered that? He could have had so many more. That was a conscious choice on his part. He could have called more than 12. He could have called 112, 1,012. And in our day-to-day, that's exactly what we would probably think he should do, right? More followers, the better, right? That's all we want on our social media, or at least that's what they tell me. More followers, right? What difference could he make with just such a small group? He could have had a real following, Well, let's think about how it started, and let's think about how it's going. Small groups are outposts of outlook. They are collectives of the kingdom, the church in living rooms. I want you to think about that. Literally, living rooms. 
Let the living room of your house live like never before. A small group is the best of neighbors. A small group can be a, a, a band of people pursuing the greatest of causes filled with the highest of loves. What's happening in a small group? It looks like normal folks. If I live down the street from one of your groups and I look out my window or down my sidewalk, it looks like normal folks. Ordinary, right? Parking, getting out of their cars, perhaps with a casserole or a plate of cookies, maybe a Bible tucked under one arm, but it is more than meets the eye. It is a gathering of spiritual power. It is a focus point of prayer and caring. Nations will be lifted up in that living room. Plans will be made to help ministry and mission partners. God's holy word will be opened and read and discussed and applied. Needs will be shared and cared for. Laughter will ring out. Tears will fall. Anxieties will lift. And hopes will rise. All because Christians got together. So we can't underestimate the beauty of a small group of devoted disciples doing life in Jesus together. And never, ever underestimate the power of a small group of dedicated disciples to change the world. Jesus was a small group leader. And to be a leader, you have to be going somewhere. Jesus' small group was never meant to be the end game. They were gathered so that they could be trained up and sent out. What happens uh, inside of their group as they were molded uh, into deeper disciples affected everything outside of their group. The apostles changed the world. They were sent out on mission. Twelve pretty regular dudes uh, ended up being the founding fathers of the church of Jesus. What Jesus did with those 12 guys was his richest ministry. Rob already said it. Jesus had a lot of followers. They came and they fell away both pretty easily. Uh, but Jesus got to go deeper with these guys than the masses. You'll even notice that's true when he tells a parable. He's, he tells it to the crowd. He turns around and explains it and wrestles with it with his apostles. This time of teaching and discussion and wrestling were also times of preparation. We can see from their lives and from their work how deeply these few were marked by their time living together with Jesus. So for us, while we love it, while we need it, the group itself is not the point. Hear me out. We are not spending all this time and energy to get together in holy huddles and insulate from the outside world. That's not what we're about. Actually, that approach will stunt our growth. That is the opposite of what we're trying to do here. We group up so that we are trained up and formed and fortified to represent Jesus everywhere else that we are. We group up to be sent out. At the very end of their time together, after the resurrection, we have this scene that we know is the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, uh, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, uh, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's how it started. How's it going? <laughs> 
How does this continue to happen? Just like Jesus did it. I'm just going to plug again. If you're interested in not being an anonymous face in a beautiful crowd of people, find me after service. Fill out the form at outlookchurch.org groups. Find your people. We are taught together. We let that truth percolate uh, until we understand it and we can drink it in. We put what we learn into practice as we love and know and serve and care for and rebuke and encourage one another. And we live life together. Let's pray. Amen. Amen to that, Kate. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your good word this morning. What a delight it is to open it up and to hear it once again. And to think that we're a part of it, part of that story. That Jesus, your same voice that, yet, that said, follow me to those original disciples, has in one way or another reached us to say, follow me too. And so, Lord, we say yes to that call. And we know that it's a call not to do it by ourselves, but to do it together, to follow you together. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would find us to be a church that, while far from perfect, is sincerely following you and growing in you. And that we would be a church that is sent, like Kate said, to make a difference in this world Lord, we do pray for our world. While we're gathered here, we'd be remiss to not say to you and make our request known to you, Lord Jesus. God, watch over Afghanistan. God, watch over Louisiana. The wars, the storms, it's a metaphor for so much that's happening in our world. And we do what only we know to do, and that is turn to you, Lord. We ask that you would move, that you would protect, that you would guide. And God, we pray that you would use us in whatever way you can to make this world a brighter and better place. God, thanks for this church. Thanks for who you are in dying for us and rising again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.